Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And again, as always, we have our co-host, Justin Pearson. Hey, Justin. Good afternoon to you, Rich. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I know I say that, but today, actually, maybe even a letter that, a little better than pretty good. A little so, better than pretty good, huh? Maybe a what, little bit. What constitutes a little better <laughs> pretty good was it a good lunch you had or yeah. you know just uh not good. as many emails or yeah that's always good uh i don't know just the general overall feeling all right, today. All right. so it's just good we'll roll with it yeah don't ask too many questions you <laughs> might just, spoil it right just enjoy it <laughs> i'll call you later like justin my day has gone downhill oh i apologize in advance <laughs> Well, today uh, we are going to see a little bit inside of the world of a very large university, food service operation, uh, and specifically talking about some nutrition. On the show today, we have Carol Bartolato, who is the Nutrition Education Coordinator at UCLA. So that's going to be interesting, I think. Wow, that's huge campus. College campuses have uh, diverse backgrounds and right. student populations pretty much everywhere you go, but particularly in California. Yeah, yeah there's a little bit more uh, health conscious attitudes going on. But with that being said, I'm sure there's just as many junk food options as there are health food options. I suppose there's still going to be some. I think she might be our first dietitian that we've ever had on the show. So that'll I be I believe you're right. Yes. Yeah. And that... That brings a whole new perspective into right. everything that we've talked about to this mm -hmm. point. And it'll be really interesting to see, in particular, how COVID has affected the way a dietitian works, particularly on a large campus, and maybe how things have modified and how, how it looks going forward for her. Yeah, I'm sure it has. Uh, even the number of kids that are on campuses, all colleges are kind of bouncing between the hybrid and the on-campus and the at home and that's got to be a constant uh, back and forth plus if people just i think across the board you've, you're hearing about more of a sedentary lifestyle so maybe yeah. students are doing the same thing just not as active right. not involved in their clubs not out and about um enjoying the campus events sporting events and things like that i think about a dietitian and what comes to mind is like when somebody has special diet restrictions you know, that's when a dietitian really uh, gets involved and I think about some of these students who, you know, maybe lactose intolerant or, you know, they're, they're not doing gluten or whatever. And I think about how menu options have probably been reduced, you know, well, you know, because that's kind of been across the board. Everybody's been reducing the number of items they offer to accommodate more of a delivery or pickup option. So I, I wonder if that's been a trickle down effect to campuses as well. I suppose that's that's true, but I often thinking about, as I was thinking about this show, I'm thinking that she must have some oversight onto the menu. You know, yeah. you can't, uh, everyone knows that you're not supposed to eat the same type of food maybe so many days in a row or too much fat in your diet or salt or whatever, and I'll bet they have some oversight into that menu for just the general student body, not just the specialty diets, um, but probably oversight over the whole campus program and maybe they have some restrictions i don't know it'll be interesting to hear i sure yeah. i can tell you this much where i went to school either they didn't have this position or <laughs> i didn't listen because i was not looking at healthy food in college <laughs> no i mean it's 
you know, when you went to school and when I went to school, there was not a lot of, I mean, there was some, there was the salad bar. <laughs> but, <laughs> that was about it. And I did yeah. see that once in a while, but most of the time. Yeah, no, then, then pretty... it ended up drowning in ranch or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> For me, you know, the freshman 15 is a real thing in college. You get kids that are away from home. They're suddenly on their own. They're, maybe their alcohol consumption is up in, in a yeah. little bit, and uh, that always skews your judgment and gives you some cravings. But just uh, not being as active, maybe, and yeah, uh, trying to study more. I don't know. There's a lot of factors, but that 15, freshman 15 is a real deal. You see a lot of students who used to play sports and were a lot more active in high school, and yeah. and then that doesn't continue on into college, so automatically your your calorie burning factor is going way down and then like you said you know you're you might be uh consuming in some other high calorie beverages that impair judgment <laughs> and then you're hitting pizzas and tacos and burritos at two in the morning and yeah. you know, that that adds up you know you, you step into that adult world and you start getting adult consequences <laughs> yeah right i'll tell you though we we've seen on the design side and at Volrath we've we've seen the switch where food service in schools now is is has such a high emphasis because the schools use that as one of the things that students want to come to a school for it it used to be a school was good at a certain academic and mm -hmm. then the kids came there for that and everything else just was there it's all looked at differently now i think right so the food service operations with station feedings with emphasis more on a food court type of um, of a layout. And even just in the amount of times they switch the menu. And we hear about like with our countertop equipment that they, they like those things because you can flip them in and out easier when it's countertop versus a floor standing six burner range and so forth. So all those things are, are factoring in. And I think we might hear some of that from her today where they want to be more flexible. They want to offer choices. They want to be able to quickly pivot when a new trend comes up or being able to accommodate maybe seasonality of, of things. So maybe we'll hear more about that. But I definitely know that the trend in college and university food service has gone more to an emphasis on the food service than it ever has before. And, and I, I, that's where our guest today, I think, is really going to shed some light on what they're doing now in the universe, college university setting to not only guide students on, on healthier dining, but cater to some of them that have these, as you mentioned, dietary concerns that we just simply weren't aware of maybe years ago. So it should be an interesting conversation. So I think let's get right to it here and invite our guest for the day. And welcome to the show once again, everyone. It is Carol Bartolotto, who is the Nutrition Education Coordinator at UCLA. Carol, welcome to the Volrath Feed. Thank you so much, Rich. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time today. And um, Justin and I talked about our experience at school, and food service is so different now. So could you just go into a little bit about what you do at the university, explain your role at UCLA? Sure. So I am the nutrition education coordinator. I'm a registered dietitian, and I do a variety of different things at UCLA. So part of my job is working with the chefs and the dining team to help make sure that we're meeting our students' needs in terms of, you know, food allergies and celiac disease and trying to increase the healthfulness of the foods and reviewing menu items and recipes and tagging them for allergens. And we have this back-end mm -hmm. system at UCLA called Food Pro, and that's how we 
provide all the data for students in terms of the nutrition information online so they can see it. So there's a food service aspect, but then also I actually work with students with food allergies to help guide them through the UCLA uh, dining halls and all the offerings that we have. But I also work with employees to do some wellness programs, like we do a wellness fair. Well, actually, with the pandemic, everything has changed, as you may have <laughs> right. guessed. But um, So I do a variety of things, and I also even work with students. And that kind of um, is blended with my work with dining, because often the students will have a project that's related to something that's happening in dining. Um, and so then I'll work with them on their... Like we had one student where it was part of her, her um, dissertation. And so a lot of different um, moving parts. But um, I think like we'll probably be addressing a lot of the things I do on the food service end of that. Yeah. So you came from healthcare. How did you find your way into higher ed? And what, what made you want to go in that direction? Wow, yes. Well, I always was interested in higher ed um, because I know how influenced I was. When I was at university, wow, I mean, I completely changed my perspective on certain things. So while I was working in healthcare, I was actually teaching as a nutrition professor at a university in California, um, basically um, in Southern Cal. And then when I left healthcare, and I saw the opportunity at UCLA. I thought, wow, that would be an interesting blend of, you know, healthcare and working with students. Um, what are some of the things that you brought from healthcare into your current role now? Well, we I worked on a project with a student where we added impossible meat to one of our dining halls. It's called Rendezvous. And Rendezvous has East and West. And West is a lot like Chipotle. So we added impossible meat um, to that and then measured what happens in terms of choice when we added that option. So a lot of what I brought to that project was a lot of what I did in terms of messaging. So it was interesting. I worked for Kaiser Permanente for many years. So I used to do this poster for National Nutrition Month and using pictures and really simple messages really drove home what we were trying to say. So for the project at Rendezvous, um, we did the same thing. We had a um, sign that showed one veggie burrito is equal to, you know, several, or one beef burrito was equal to, like, like I think it was about five veggie burritos. Mm. And we had a stanchion sign with a chart which showed how much, what the carbon footprint was for beef and um, other animal products versus lentils. And there is a gigantic difference. And also using visuals, like we added a high and low carbon footprint icon so students could see, you know, which foods were actually really high in carbon footprint and made it really easy for them. We added um, a website with information, with graphics, so we tried to, so I tried to use some of the things that I learned, simple messaging, using pictures, um, so that kind of thing, but giving people evidence-based information that they could actually apply to what they're doing or how they're living their life. 
um, now. So I found that to be really um, effective in healthcare, and it turns out it was really effective in UCLA for this project. Interesting. You know, you, I've heard you say a couple of times I worked with a student or for a student we did this. It makes it sound like you're very personalized at one level, but yet being at UCLA, how many students do you feed through all of your outlets in a day? Is that, or what is the student body? Do you know the, the number, how many students are at UCLA you service? Well, at UCLA in general is much broader, but the students that live on the hill, so the dining halls that I work with, our chefs, etc., cetera, um, those are for students that live on the hill. And so in a normal year, you know, without COVID, <laughs> Um, we we'll probably have like 13,000 students living on the hill, whereas right now we have maybe 800. So it's hugely, mm -hmm. vastly different than what it normally would be. So when you make those changes, it obviously is to all those 13,000. So you might start with one student and you get this impossible meat that you want to add that to their menu. But then the rest of the student body, you do some marketing to, to show them the benefit of that product. Is that kind of how that project went? Yes, well, it was, a, as I said, a student's dissertation, went through our assistant vice chancellor and other leaders in dining, and then I worked hand-in-hand -hand with um, the student, Hannah, to um, create something that would work when it hit the ground. So, we, so this was an offering now. Um, you know how at Chipotle you'd go down the line, you could choose beef or carnitas or sofritos um, and so this is just another option but you know we use clever marketing things like make the impossible possible or swap the meat save the planet but really focusing on climate change because interestingly I don't see a lot of outside restaurants sort of marketing looking at climate change but for students or millennials or actually a big segment of the population is really influenced by climate change more than health. Students, not a lot of students care about health. Some do, <laughs> some do, but it's not a primary driver. Climate change is a primary driver. So focusing on that and adding a lot of different moving parts, we're actually going to create a toolkit to share once the research is published in a peer-reviewed journal so that other people can use some of the things that we found to be effective to try to reach people. Um, so then this option of using the Impossible Meat was available to any student that came through um, the line uh, at Rendezvous. And um, so we did find that the amount of animal foods or high carbon footprint foods decreased and the amount of lower carbon footprint foods did increase from this intervention. And, you know, it's just gone gangbusters since then. Students are all, I mean, just today I received another email. Students want to help me with the high and low carbon footprint. And then another email. The other students want to help you with doing these promotions at other dining halls. Students are incredibly passionate about climate change. Incredibly. They're the ones that are going to have to live with the consequences of some of the bad decisions that have been made. And like you, you mentioned earlier, a lot of other restaurants uh, out in the mainstream really aren't utilizing 
climate change and carbon footprinting as as a marketing tool, whereas you guys are are really seeing a lot of positivity with that. And but you know, college campuses are kind of test beds. You know, these once they're graduating, they're out in the job force. That's probably a trend that we'll start to see in in into uh, mainstream uh, restaurants and uh, organizations because that's what where the demographics mentality is at, you know, and they're they're starting to accept that. Do you do you notice any other areas in dining on campus that might be potential trends in the future? Nutritional trends, you know, some of them, like for example, limiting sugar is something that's really important, or choosing healthy fats, or choosing less sugary drinks. But students aren't that as passionate about those. In fact, one of the dining halls, we eliminated the sugary drinks and some of the students expressed that they wanted them added back. So, you know, I think like whenever you make a change, it's really important to do some sort of educational intervention so people understand and always giving people options, which, you know, we do at UCLA. Um, I think one of the big keys, and this is part of my work, I'm a part of that Menus of Change University Research Collaborative or MCURC for short. Um, and they created something called the Edgy Veggie Toolkit, which was out of some research that they did. Because if you label something as healthy, like at UCLA, if we labeled corn or, or carrots as low sodium carrots or healthy carrots, nobody would choose them. <laughs> but if you label them like zesty ginger carrots or something like that, then they're more likely. So one of the things I think that will be emphasized more is don't focus on the health benefits so much. Focus on flavor of the things that you want to people to choose, especially, you know, produce and vegetables. And this Edgy Veggie Toolkit, so this was research that was done at multiple universities throughout this collaborative. And then they published the research and they created a toolkit out of it which could be used by anyone. Um, so these are the kinds of things that I think moving forward, you know, focusing on climate change, you know, focusing on flavor, not so much. Even my work in healthcare, you labeled something as the quote unquote healthy pick and no one wanted it. Versus, mm -hmm. so targeting um, targeting the how you name something and and naming it based on flavors is much more effective in trying to drive choice. So that works well for people who don't have any dietary restrictions. Does that complicate things for somebody who say like they need a low sodium diet? So does it make it harder for them to find out what is low sodium if it isn't labeled low sodium? Well, the great thing, I mean, I can't speak for other places, but most universities, including UCLA, if you go to their menu and you click on that item, it gives you all the nutrition facts. So that's some of the back end work that I do. So uh, not only do I have to make sure that the nutrition facts are correct, so they'll be able to see what the sodium is, but then all the allergens are tagged, the top eight allergens, you know, like soy and dairy and fish and shellfish, etc., tree nuts and peanuts. Um, so all of those things are tagged with icons. We also add little icons for vegan and vegetarian items and as I already mentioned, the low and high carbon footprint icon. So it is um, really easy to get that, that information by looking, but if you lead with it 
it discourages people. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I'm interested in, in the menu a little bit more now and how, how you develop that. And how does that process work for you? Well, we have a lot of recipes in, in sure. our food pro system. So um, a lot of them are student favorites. And uh, like this Chipotle chicken bowl is one of the students' favorites. Um, so there may be some changes to some of the existing recipes, but we're always adding new recipes all the time. So they just added a new concept at UCLA called, well, we have four all-you-care-to-eat all facilities uh, or dining halls, um, and then we have several other grab-and-go kinds of restaurants, and we just opened up a new one called Brew and Bowl. So it, it uses that bowl concept. And what's so great about it is if a student has a food allergy or some sort of intolerance, they can choose around that. So it makes it really easy for them to say, okay, yeah, I don't want any wheat. I want to have rice or I want to have chicken and I want to have... So they can kind of pick and choose. Um, so it allows for a lot of choice. We have other... We have like one of our um, all-you-care-to-eat restaurants is like Asian fusion. We have one that is uh, food of the Americas or like comfort food. We have one that's a healthy concept restaurant called Bruin Plate. So the students have a lot of choice. So for each year, you know, each or each quarter, we do theme dinners. And so for example, because we, we have limited dining halls open right now during COVID. So they're pulling from a lot of these different restaurants to populate the menu for that dining hall. But they do theme dinners, like we just did a vegan Taco Bell, which was actually very popular with the students. So that's a way to introduce new things. And so they will definitely be adding new recipes, um, adding new recipes for theme dinners. And they're always trying new things like jackfruit or new vegan recipes or new we're going to add um, so, like a, to, a sofritos type of dish at Rendezvous to go along with the trying to add more plant-based options. So I've been kind of laying back and I've, um, you guys are talking about all this healthy stuff and I, I just got to, I got to say, I, I want to know about what about the guilty pleasures? What about those things that students are still going to want to eat. They're still going to want a hamburger. They're still going to want some of that ice cream or those sugary things. And you've got to balance that out, right? It can't all be just the healthy. And we've talked about the veggie toolkits and things. And I, I know there's that area, but you must have this other population that just says, hey, I want my greasy cheeseburger with bacon on it, right? I, you have those items as well. Oh, absolutely. We offer students choice. And there are a lot of options that would fall into the indulgent category, I guess you, sh you could say. You know, we have burgers and we have fries. Now, we do have what we call a Bruin burger, and it's a blended burger. So it's beef, but it's blended with other more healthy ingredients like quinoa or mushrooms and things. So, you know, we get around some of the impacts on health and the environment by doing that. But, you know, we've got the bacon burgers and we've got mm -hmm. the French fries and we've got the delicious desserts. And um, so, no, that has not gone away. The pizza. <laughs> so if there were a head-to-head -head competition on the Angus beef or the veggie burger, what do you think would happen? Oh, well, um, well, you know, 
that's an interesting question. Because of the climate issue, you know, when we came up with that, that icon that added that red world to, it's an orange red world to the, all the items with beef, lamb, or, or a lot of cheese, the students were literally clamoring and saying, we want less beef. But boy, when we have brisket, you know, as one of the options at Bruin Plate or another dining hall or, you know, the students love it. So, you know, I, it's hard to say we have, but we definitely have a big group of people or a big group of students that I can tell because I see the long lines waiting to grab those items. But then we'll have a vegan night and we have long lines for that. So huh. I think we have both. And just to give you an That's idea, because I don't know that it's um, completely understood to, to give you a frame of reference. So certain organizations like, like, like Harvard has worked together with other organizations to come up with guidelines for greenhouse gas emissions, like total greenhouse gas emissions. So it's anywhere between 1,800 to 2,200 grams a day, somewhere around there. Four ounces of beef is about 3,000 grams. So if you eat four, or I'm sorry, four ounces, did I say four ounces of beef? You did. Four ounces of beef is about the same, uh, it's about 3,000 grams of greenhouse gas equivalent. So you eat that little bit and you're over the limit with one item. So we try to educate students. Sure, you can have beef sometimes, but um, we're trying to help them for health reasons, for environmental reasons, to um, choose less of it. It's all about balance. It's all about choice, mm -hmm. but also trying to educate students so they can have that balance between, yeah, okay, I'm going to have beef some days, but I'm also going to have some veggie options too. Speaking on um, the... MCURC. Could you go a little bit further into that? Is is that a partnership with somebody? Is uh, what are some of the initiatives there? What what's the overarching goals that you're trying to uh, accomplish with that? So MCURC or Menus of Change University Research Collaborative was co-founded by actually the Culinary Institute of America and Stanford University, and it was started in 2014. And at this point, it's a collaboration of 60 different universities and colleges around the U.S. And basically, the overall goal is to help lead university food service operations towards healthy, sustainable, and optimal uh, food choices. So they have all these principles like plant-forward menus, choose less red meat, um, choose less or, or add less sugar and salt. Uh, more vegetable options, lead with produce. Um, and then, so it's these uh, principles to support uh, dining organizations within universities. And then also we do a lot of research. So I'm actually a part of the research group and there's an education group. So we do different projects and then we try to share them with each other to learn and share information or also publish them in peer-reviewed journals. And, you know, any organization or any uh, university or college can join. They allow people to join once a year. And they just, it has to be a university and the people that would have to be involved are things like um, uh, executive chefs or chefs or dietitians or 
administrators or managers in the dining uh, part of the uh, university, and even uh, research uh, professors that do research. So I'm now collaborating with a lot of our professors and students to try to do research. So it's, it's actually pretty fun and exciting. And they kind of perceive, like, they view the uh, dining halls as living laboratories. And you can do, because it's a closed setting, you know, you could do this amazing research in, in the universities because these students are living on campus and eating the bulk of their meals in these dining uh, restaurants, dining halls or restaurants. So it can be quite an um, effective way to do research, looking at behavior change, food waste reduction, plant-forward um, diets, what are the drivers that drive people to make particular food choices. So those are the kinds of things that we can look at. How does it look like working with your chefs on campus? What's your relationship with them when you're collaborating? Well, like for example, at Rendezvous, I actually made a suggestion that we add a lentil dish. So we had such success with the adding the impossible meat that then we decided to add lentils, uh, spicy red lentils or spiced red lentils is what we call them. And then we were just about to add, kind of like at a Chipotle, we were just about to add a, a sofritos. So I will make a suggestion. I'll sit down with the chef. I showed him research, which is basically if you have more plant-based options, it can increase the ch students choosing them. So having more plant-based options, less meat-based options, they're chosen more readily. And so then working with the chef, so what could we add? And we talked about jackfruit, we talked about sofritos, but I've done some back-end research you know, at Chipotle because that's a really popular item. It sells very well. So I thought, well, why don't we do something like that? We, were, we just had created one that we were going to add and then COVID happened. So it might be something like that, or it could be that they'll create something and then I'll attend a tasting and I'll say, okay, well, we're using impossible meat. So for this dining hall, we already know it's going to be too high in saturated fat. Like brew and plate is our healthy concept where we actually have guidelines that we have to follow, like a criteria, a nutritional criteria. And some of these plant-based meats, these coconut oil, I wish they wouldn't, mm -hmm. but they do. And that it sounds of, healthy, doesn't it? Coconut oil, right? <laughs> well, not if you read that. Not if you read the evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually super high in saturated fat. Yeah, it sounds good though. It's like oh, coconut oil, really? Right. Right. No, no. <laughs> so you know, I work on you know with them on the front end, on the back end. Or I even maybe will make suggestions like we had a like a a bun and the bun had uh, butter in it. So if we had a vegan patty, the vegan students were upset. So just making the suggestion, why don't we just have a bun that doesn't have butter? We don't have to have butter. It also had potatoes in it. And part of the menus of change principles is to limit potatoes because they have such a... Um, they bump up glucose, so that's not really good. Uh, they have a high glycemic load, they call it. So we switched to more of a whole grain bun, and we took out the butter, and so that solves, you know, a lot of problems. So, so there could be a variety of ways that I work with the chefs, or maybe just bringing in a new item. Like we're looking now at some new dairy items that 
are um, made out of pea protein because that wouldn't be an allergen versus soy is an allergen or almonds can, are an are allergen for some students. So trying to, you know, or there's other little subtle things like the, the when they first did the impossible meat, they used a spice mix that had flour in it. But if a student has celiac disease, they can't have gluten. So I asked them, can you switch to um, something else? So they switched to um, cornstarch instead, which isn't an allergen for most people. It's not one of the top eight. So those kinds of things, um, basically how we work, work together. Sounds like an incredible balancing act because there's so many demands that need to be met from from the student body population and whereas like even you know 15 20 years ago uh, nobody cared about these people you know nobody cares if you have an allergy you know like there's the salad bar go hit it you know or it, it's not even about allergies it's about preferences and and having choices so with more of these options uh coming into play it just it sounds like an incredible amount of work to be able to, to uh, for one person to handle. Do you have an entire team uh, that you work with to, because you have to break down every menu item, right, and and analyze it, or how does what what's that all about? Well, yeah, we have this um, dining services, um, and so they add all the recipes to into this back end system, and then I review all the recipes and add. Uh, a pointer for all the different ingredients and make, we can use Esha or sometimes we have to create our own pointer. So, oh, it's definitely a huge team because we've got the team of chefs. We have our executive chef. We have our directors of dining, you know, driving the direction of certain things. But then we have, you know, the dining services central office, which has a huge amount of team members that add this information on the back end, make sure that the recipes are correct. So we all work together to try to make sure that our students are getting the correct information. And Dining Services also created the website. And um, so there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. You know, and with COVID, we had to change so many things, so many ways mm. that we did things. And that, like, we have... Yes, you you were talking about food allergens and so many more. I have no idea why this is, but so many more students now have food allergies than they did. When I was a kid, I have to say I had one friend that was allergic to strawberries and that was it. And now we have so many students yeah. that... I mean, I mean even, are, are they actually documented or do they just say, oh, I'm allergic to those? Yeah, you know? well, I wish that I could say that that were true, but no, they're documented because we huh. have cases of students that go into anaphylaxis on campus, you know, as wow. people do all over the United States at this point. In fact, you're not even allowed to have peanuts on a plane anymore. Some people are so allergic to peanuts that you just open the bag and they're sitting across from you in the aisle on a plane and they could go into anaphylaxis. So it's a totally different ballgame. I think part of the problem is for a while they thought that if you have a family that has food allergies, you should avoid, have that child avoid, oh, just avoid them all when they're young. And that was actually a mistake. Small amounts. Now they're finding, you know, if you come from a family that has food allergies, adding small amounts of those foods to their diet 
helps to sort of sensitize their immune system and they're better able to tolerate those foods later on. So it's kind of a mistake that was made. Is part of that also, do you think, the overuse of antimicrobials and antibacterials and things like that that we have in cleaners nowadays that everything is is so heightened? Because you hear the old stories of people saying, I played in the dirt and ate things out of our hands. Is that, is that fine? Are they finding that as well? You know, that's an area that they is very fascinating. They call it the microbiota. And there's a lot that we don't know about it, but we do know that the more diverse your microbiota is, the healthier you will be, the less allergies. So to give you an example, um, babies born via C-section, because we're basically inoculated with bacteria when we're born, you know, coming through the birth canal of our mothers. Well, um, kids that were not, were born via C-section, the bacteria in their gut is basically bacteria from the parent's skin, and they have more allergies and more eczema. So, you know, it could be that part of the problem is, um, you know, this issue of this disrupted microbiota. And diet plays a huge role. That's why eating fiber is so important. Fiber is food for the microbiota. It's so funny because a student and professor came to me. They wanted to do a research project on fiber. And they wanted to identify, oh, let's identify these foods as high fiber, because then we could say that that's healthy and students will choose it. Well, as we, I was saying, you know, students <laughs> will not choose it if you identify it as high in fiber. So what we did was we, we were unable to do this project because then COVID hit, but I want to do this moving forward, but basically talked about fiber as food for the microbiota. So you don't, you eat a bean and beans and grains are the highest sources of fiber in our diet. And so you eat those foods, they're not digested in our small intestine, they go to the large intestine, and that bacteria that's there, that's food for them. And it produces methane. That's why uh, eating fiber produces gas. And people perceive that as a bad thing, but that just means your microbiota, that bacteria, is getting fed. And that bacteria can affect your immune system, it can affect how you manage or how you regulate your blood sugar. I mean, there are so many things wow. and so many roles that it plays. So if you're on like a paleo or a ketogenic diet, you're basically starving the bacteria in your gut by limiting things like grains and beans. Wow. wow. I had no idea. That's interesting. <laughs> that is really interesting. Yeah. It's, well, and that's, I guess that's how you got to talk to younger people and students is, you got to really, I, and I guess anybody for that matter, you got to show them the benefits. You got to get to the point quickly and be like, hey, you know, what does high fiber mean? Who cares? Oh, this is why you should care. It does this, this, and this so that you can uh, be healthier, better person all around. I, right. I really it like that. Even affects mood or how you metabolize energy in your body. It, it plays a huge role. And it's something that, you know, in addition to talking about food in terms of climate change, I think food in terms of the microbiota is important, or also food in terms of inflammation. Like beef, not only is it a high carbon footprint icon, it's linked with colon, colon and rectal cancer and heart disease, elevated risk of diabetes. 
It's also pro-inflammatory. Mm. And so is sugar. So it's, it's really interesting when we look at food, we can see these parallels. Things that are good for us are also good for the environment. They lower inflammation. I mean, so there's just, it's kind of a no-brainer basically to eat more plant foods and eat less processed foods, less red meat, less sugar. And it's just multiple benefits for, you know, lots of things, including that microbiota. And the microbiota, I mean, literally, we are in our infancy, but we, in terms of our knowledge about it, but that's another reason why we don't want to just randomly take antibiotics. Because people say, oh, I'm sick, I want antibiotics. Every dose of antibiotics destroys more and more of your microbiota. And as I said, you know, having a diverse microbiota is key. Wow. So much there. And you said before that you, I got the sense that you kind of scour the menu and then you go to the chef and you show him the research to, to ask for these changes. Do you ever get pushback from the chefs or are they all pretty willing to, to go along with it? Do they, do they buy into it pretty, pretty readily with you? Um, well, you know, really a lot of the options, cause I get a lot of feedback from students that they want more plant-based options. Um, and so, you know, I did a present, I met with the chefs about the sofritas, then I had a student contact me, and then I met with the chefs, you know, with the student and our sustainability manager, and we did another presentation that way, and, you know, so it's a constant, this is how I perceive myself, my role is being a nudge, and, you know, <laughs> when I worked in healthcare, there's something called, um, what did they call it, it's kind of like, if you give people 52 little nudges, you're much more likely to change behavior. So, or is it 26? Like we need lots of nudges. And it's just like with smoking. Nobody ever quits smoking. Very rarely, I used to teach smoking cessation. Very rarely does a person change, quit smoking the first time. They may try quitting and it usually takes five or six times. So it really is this. So I feel like I'm the nudge of the chefs at UCLA. And if you ask them that, they probably confirm it. Hey, <laughs> let's get rid of, I must have asked them 10 times. Can we get rid of the potato bun and switch to one that doesn't have dairy and has more whole grain in it, you know? So then eventually we did, you know, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, but, you know, I'm always nice about it. <laughs> At least I try. But, um, well, yeah, it's a hand in hand. We work together. And I, I think ultimately they appreciate it because then it makes them look good. When we get accolades or when people are happy with what we're doing, then, you know, everybody, you know, working together, it really does work. Speaking of moving forward, is there anything coming out of COVID that – you're like, you know what, without being in a lockdown, without being a pandemic, we never would have stumbled upon this. Is there anything like that that, that you've taken and you're like, you know what, after, after this pandemic, we're going to continue doing things this way? Um, yeah, there are a few things. Well, first of all, changing on a dime and being innovative and creative and trying to come up with solutions. I mean, because yeah. that's really what COVID, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. How many right. students would have to be in isolation? having to create isolation menus. How do you handle a student in isolation that has food allergies? You know, so coming up with things. But one of the things, like if a student has food allergies, I would normally, when they came on campus, I would meet with them and uh, I would then walk over to the dining hall, introduce them to the chef. 
But now I have to do everything through Zoom. But what the the kind of benefit of that was the parents could be involved. And the, oh. the parents were very interested and worried about their their child. So um, having the parents there, I am going to move forward doing that first step of showing them the dining hall websites and talking about how it works and talking about our options. I'm going to continue to do that on Zoom. And then we have this thing called the gluten-free pantry for students with celiac disease or other gluten sensitivities. And we normally they could just go in a room and just choose these options, but we can't have them going in a room and touching everything. So I put everything online as on a website and linked to the external site with all the nutrition information. And I like that better. We used to just have a binder or they could look at the item. So moving forward, I'm going to stick with this, um, this process. So I think there are some things and you know, it's another reason to choose more plant-based options because let's face it. Um, if you take like, they're less expensive. And when you look at COVID and how it's impacting everyone's budget, um, beans, let's say black beans, you cook black beans, they're, um, they increase the, the, like a pound of beans increases, the yield increases with cooking. It doesn't decrease like hamburger meat or brisket or something. Mm. So it's about 26 cents a pound. And that has protein and fiber versus like brisket or beef, you know, the yield decreases. So the cost per pound increases. So just from a cost perspective, adding more recipes that feature lentils or beans makes sense across the board, you know, health, microbiota, climate change has more fiber, cheaper. Um, so just lots of benefits. What about fish and that type of protein? Is that, is, is the, we've talked a lot about red beef and, and red meats rather beef in particular. What about fish? Is that also on uh, the list as far as trying to reduce the consumption of fish? Um, actually, so part of the menus of change is to increase fish options. Uh, good. And fish is very popular, especially salmon. Mm -hmm. So we try, we aim to have sustainably um, fished fish. <laughs> and um, so we try, we look for sustainable options. And then also bycatch, we had a big program which used um, bycatch fish. So fish that were caught up in nets that weren't, that wasn't the target. Um, so we did do a whole promotion and we did purchase some of those types of um, products. So yes, fish, um, fish is something that we try to increase or choose more of for okay. sure. And there's a lot of health benefits with fish, most, not all. So it's sort of interesting. So fish, is really high like salmon. Fatty fish is high in omega-3 fatty acids. But something like tilapia, ironically, you know, it's farmed and they feed it grains. So it's actually high in arachidonic acid, which is pro-inflammatory. It's not anti-inflammatory. So does it mean that tilapia is bad? No, but if you think you're getting the benefits from something like tilapia, you're really, in terms of like uh, anti-inflammatory, you know, uh, lower inflammation and all the benefits that you might get from 
a fish that a fatty fish that's high in omega three fatty acids just aren't there. Yeah, I, I enjoyed your point earlier about uh, some of the plant based things. The bean example that you gave, as far as being an inexpensive, because typically what we see the inexpensive cut of meat, such as ground beef, those are the ones that. Unfortunately, some people, that's what they can afford, so they eat a lot of that versus the more expensive cut, which is maybe a better cut, leaner. Uh, but you, you brought up a great point there with vegetable-based or plant-based things that really are inexpensive. And if you just learn how to prepare them with uh, better methods and not putting in the fats and things, they can be a very healthy, inexpensive way to feed your family. Oh, absolutely. That's why that bowl concept, I think, is so fabulous because... That means you can have a bowl maybe with some brown rice, some beans, some or some lentils. I love lentils because they're so easy to cook. Beans are a little more complicated, but lentils are fast. They cook quickly. And then you could add a little animal products to that. Um, so it's just like an adjunct to the meal. It's not the main focus of the meal. Um, or you could just then, you know, choosing more plant-based meals is really beneficial. That's where that whole concept of meatless Mondays came out or, mm -hmm. you know, just adding more meatless meals. So using that bowl concept is a way to do that. In fact, I was talking to a student, that's all she eats. And she'll have different bowls with different sauces, maybe chili oil or sriracha. You know, students, oh, that's a trend. The spicy stuff is a trend. I swear to you, it's from the Flaming Hot Cheetos. I didn't grow up with them, but if I feel like it like changed the American palate, you know, towards spicy. But you know, you can take that flavor profile and add it to plant-based foods. Like for example, there's this Chinese restaurant and even during COVID, I still go there because I love their chilies in oil. Not sure what they do to it, but it's so tasty. So I'll, I'll grill tofu and I'll put some chilies with oil on that or I'll put it on broccoli. Um, you know, I'll even mix it with a tiny, I know it sounds bizarre. These are, you know, we were talking about some friends about guilty pleasures and what are you doing that's sustaining you. I'll mix this vegan, this follow your heart vegan mayonnaise. It is like, even my, my um, friends that are chefs that didn't want to try it and said, I'm not trying vegan mayonnaise. It's better than regular mayonnaise. So oh, miss... that's quite the boast. Oh, that's oh, a, that's it, a throw down there. It is. What's, what's it called again? I got to take it, note because I've tried some vegan mayonnaise that some different ones that were just like, okay, I appreciate the effort. But, you know, maybe you should go back to the drawing board. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow vegan your mayo. Heart. It's, it's to die for. And I mix that chili oil in there and then I put it on broccoli and I'm happy. Yeah. I put it, I'm happy. So it's a little, you know, a little indulgent because it's kind of a creamy, spicy sauce, you know. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, flavor drives drives us to eat. And so we want to, and using the spicy flavor, I think, helps to support. And also, you know, fresh herbs, um, lots of spices like curry and that mm -hmm. kind of thing really mm -hmm. um, can help flavor up more plant-based options, make them more palatable and more desirable. Right. Well, and like you were you were talking about before, uh, we eat with our our brains and our eyes first. So right. in that marketing, you know, instead of saying low sodium, you say zesty ginger, you know, and, and so you're preparing your palate for what's to come. You're like you're telling yourself this is going to be delicious right. instead of 
this is going to be healthy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Deliciousness drives consumption. Yeah, it does. It really it, does. And until we can break that stigma of healthy being not as tasty, we're going to have to be creative with, yes. with our marketing. Well, breaking that is also, I think, uh, salt is is one of the areas I think that people have grown to be um, used to salty foods because I was told to eat less salt for health reasons. And I've now gotten used to foods being less salted. But I, I see and I feel like there's been more and more with processed foods, especially and restaurant food that people are eating. They cook less at home. They're eating out so much. They get used to more salt. Uh, do you address that on your menus? And how do you have any campaigns to help students with trying to lower salt? I know the zesty and the other types of flavorings rather than salt, but do you still put salt shakers on the table? And how do you Actually, get people? we don't. You we don't. don't? We do have little, like, little bowls with some salt where they could add some, but they have to go out of their way to do it. And right. working with the chefs, you know, if a, let's say a chef is used to a higher consumption of salt, if they taste a recipe, it's going to taste fine to them. But that's the interesting thing about salt. Salt is an acquired taste. If you gave salt to a baby, it's very bitter and it would make a face and it wouldn't like it. Versus sugar, you know, we love sugar. But so if you're used to adding a lot of salt, then that's what your palate's used to. And if you don't have a lot of salt in the option, in the recipe, then it won't taste right to you. But here's the fantastic news. That ability to change your palate occurs over about two to three weeks. So you start lowering your salt intake, then the lower salted foods taste great. Mm -hmm. So I try to get them to, you know, use less salt and use more herbs and spices, fresh herbs instead. And in general, you know, UCLA was already doing that and aiming for that. Um, where you get into trouble is when you make these recipes, like where you add this, uh, let's say we had this one, I think it was a pizza where it had barbecue sauce and that was high in salt and then it had cheese and that's high in salt. And then it had something else that was high in salt. So, but you know, the biggest source of salt in the American diet, guess what it is? Soft drinks. Mm. Nope. Bread. Bread. Really? Bread is the highest source because we, we no one eat a lot bread. of bread and it has, <laughs> Just, it's in it there, is yeah. a good source of salt. And so most, the biggest source of our um, diet, of what we, of what we consume, you know, most of the salt comes from bread. No, I know that because, again, I watch my salt. And if you look at uh, a serving of a commercial pizza, that's something you'd buy at the store. It's it's amazing how much salt is in two slices of pizza. Oh, it's, yeah. It's a lot. And I, I agree with you. You're too, yes. Yeah. And your two-week um, assessment is right because, I, again, my doctor advised me not to. So not our, at our family meals, I'll say, does this taste salty? And no one else will think it tastes salty, but I do because I'm... I'm watching salt. And the trick that I try to use is I never salt food at a restaurant or if it's made here at home, I won't salt it at the table. I eat it as it is. If it's made a certain way, that's what I'll eat. So um, that's just my little trick for trying to keep my salt content or my salt intake low. Right. Mm. Yeah, great idea. Uh, what, Carol, um, what are some other tips or tricks that uh, an operator, a restaurant operator could do to utilize healthier ingredients and and maybe you know because like it's like we've talked about it's a hard sell to tell your customers 
that this is a healthier option uh, as opposed to just making it tastier. So what what are a couple of things that, that a restaurant owner could do to incorporate healthier ingredients without sacrificing flavor? You know, sometimes UCLA even brings in guest chefs, like we brought in an Indian ah, chef. Okay. Uh, where we, so they tried all these different spice profiles and it was actually really interesting because, you know, plant-based foods are a big part of Indian culture. So bringing in these um, different chefs, bringing in recipes with those different kinds of, of flavor profiles. Oh, that's that's a great idea. I like that. Uh, as we relate this back to like owner operators and what they can, something they can learn from uh, a college environment is bringing in a guest chef who brings in healthier recipes that are going to taste amazing. It, I believe it would be much more accepted when they when somebody else comes in and then after they leave. You have all this positive feedback from your customers like, oh, we really loved it when when that chef made this amazing dish. Uh, maybe you could put that on your menu. And they're like, oh, okay. So so then you end up making that in the long run, you know, because somebody else was able to break the ice for you. Yeah, yeah you good. know, it's, it's what's really interesting, I think, at the students at the college level, a lot of times they weren't introduced to a lot of these foods yes. at home. So it's this chance to introduce them. And, you know, I even had a mom contact me and say, my daughter loves one of your smoothies at Bruin Plate. Can I have the recipe? And so I gave her the recipe. And the recipe wasn't that complex, It it, but it was a smoothie that had oatmeal in it and um, almond butter and um, a few other ingredients. So it was like a breakfast smoothie. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the students were introduced to things that they maybe never had. And this may change... Like I was saying earlier, what I learned in college, some of the things that when I was in university affected me for my entire life. And Mm -hmm. so we're hoping to educate them and excite them about all these things about food that will they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. All right. Well, um, thank you again so much for taking the time with us today. As as Justin said, we uh, we learned a lot today and it's been very interesting. very, very interesting stuff as far as what you're talking about with the health and plant-based and getting away from from some of the stuff for health reasons and just um, the global reasons. Global yeah. reasons, correct, yeah, right? Multiple right. Multiple reasons, yeah. We always enjoy hearing from our guests. Uh, something sometimes uh, you get a quote or something that's motivated you or you live by or you've heard once that inspired you. Do you have anything like that that you'd like to share with our listeners for today? Um, Yeah, I absolutely love Michael Pollan. That guy has a way with words. You know, he's the one that said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. But I love a couple of his other ones. He has this one, um, if it came from a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't. Mm. He also says like things like, the wonderful thing about food is you get three votes a day. Every one of them has the potential to change the world. I love that. Oh, that's good. Wow. Well, Carol, again, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Really taught us a lot, opened our eyes to a lot of things that, um, quite frankly, I wasn't expecting in today's conversation. So thank you so much again for that. You're welcome. Very interesting. So nice to meet you both. Pleasure as well. And um, uh, again, wishing you the the best of luck for the next year in in, in UCLA. Hope things go well for you there. And, uh, Just again, thank you so much for today. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you, you guys. Take All care. Right, take stay care. safe. Justin, once again, you know, we get in these uh, podcasts and sometimes we think the conversation's going to go one place and it ends up kind of shifting. And boy, I'll tell you that the, the stuff she was talking about, I know it was a little off kind of where we thought the podcast was going to go today, but yeah. just interesting stuff. I've got people I know that are my nieces, nephews with allergies and the things she talked about, the microbiota and um, just the plant-based stuff. And I don't know, and the nudging. I, I All that stuff to me is just, it is a good nudge for today for me personally. Well, yeah, definitely. And I think one thing is we all think that we're food experts because we consume food every single day. But there's so much more to it that we just don't know because we we haven't done the research, we haven't done the science, and in a lot of ways, we're not open to even listening to it. So it's just fascinating to hear from a professional uh, on some of these angles and some of these data that's been collected over the years, and then also how it's being implemented and utilized in a college environment. Because like she said, that's, that's a laboratory setting. But the nice thing about the tests that are going on in this laboratory is they're going to take that out into the world once they graduate, get jobs, move out, start families. So I think from a food service perspective, it really behooves operators to pay attention to what's going on there. Meaning, if being conscious of the, the state of the planet, uh, climate change, carbon footprinting, if that's important to your future customers, then it should be important to you. And you should be able to address that on some level and have options or at least, and maybe you're already doing these things, but you just need to bring it to light. Be like, hey, this menu item has a low carbon footprint. And, and maybe you even never even thought about that before as being a selling point, but you should probably start thinking about it because that's where the demographic is and that's where they're going to be. Well, I think the, the point that she brought up that's going to be also very useful for an operator to think of is don't call the carrots, don't call the item low salt. Call it the spicy zesty, whatever. Right, right. You know, we, we've learned time and time again, and people don't want to do it for the health reason. They want to do it for the satisfaction. They want it to taste good. Yeah, it's got to taste good first. And uh, if there's health benefits with that, then all the better. All right, so another good show today, Justin. Very cool. Love it. Any thoughts for you to wrap things up today, Justin? Well, I would just once again like to remind everyone to hit that subscribe button and never miss another moment with a chef or food service professional again. And we would also greatly appreciate it if you would take a moment and give us a review. Listen to your customers, right? That's same, right. Same philosophy. So again, if anything like that, if you want to reach out to us on our website, please look for us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And again... Don't worry about other people. Don't worry what they're doing. Do what you do best, and no one's going to beat you. That's it for today, everybody. Till next time, take care.